Why renter's insurance? Because fajitas. State Farm renter's insurance covers stuff landlords don't, like smoke-damaged furniture from fajita night gone wrong. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. Welcome to Insight. I am Ali and here with me as always is Charlie. How are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder about CrimeCon. It's not too late to use our special listener discount code INSIGHT420, which will get you 20% off your tickets. We will be there, of course, along with a whole heap of true crime podcasters, authors and bloggers. Charlie's favourite author will be there, so she'll be lining up with her book. There will be a whole heap of activities to do and chances to discuss your favourite cases. Go to crimecon.com and use Insightful 20 to buy your tickets. So tonight we'll be talking about a multiple disappearance, and this one is at sea, but it's not a missing boat. So sorry to disappoint you, Charlie. You know how much I love those missing boat stories. Tonight we're going to be talking about a case known as the crew of Sarah Jo. And this is a listener suggestion from Jenny, so thank you, Jenny. And before we begin, I'm going to apologise to anyone in Hawaii. I'm going to mispronounce every single name and place incorrectly. And not due to lack of trying to do better. We listen to a lot of videos. And I've been spending the last week trying, so I'm doing my best. So to the story. Scott Mormon was born in 1952, and he grew up in the San Fernando Valley in California. From childhood, he was obsessed with everything to do with Hawaii. He would tell his parents that one day he was going to move there. Scott marries right out of high school and he has a son, but when Scott and his wife get divorced in 1975, he decides to live the dream and he moves to Hawaii to the small town of Nahiku. Now, Nahiku is a mixture of native Hawaiians and a growing number of American and Canadian expats. From what I've read, it sounds like it attracted laid-back and somewhat hippie and free-loving type people. For our Australian listeners, it's stereotypically Byron Bay. And generally, the natives weren't the biggest fans of these foreigners, but a handful, including Scott, they made a real effort to get to know them. They learnt to speak their language, they learnt their customs, and so gradually they became accepted by the natives as one of them. Just before he went missing, Scott goes back to California to see his son for his birthday and to see his parents. Everyone tries to talk him into moving back. I mean, they missed him, of course. But he felt drawn to Nahiku. It was his home. And for those who have lived or holidayed on an island like Hawaii or Bali or Vanuatu, anywhere like that, you know they run on their own time. Yes, we will meet you at 10 o'clock means we might get there around noon. Or maybe I'll do something generally means find someone else to do it. I'll give you an example of this. My family are all beach and water people. Whenever we are able and it's hot enough, we are at the beach or lake or whatever. Before kids, my husband and I went to Vanuatu for a holiday. 
And being who we are, we made plans with the resort to meet someone, I think it was something like 11 o'clock, to go canoeing. So we turn up a little before 11 o'clock and we wait and we wait and we wait. In the end, we waited for an hour and ended up just helping ourselves to a canoe and a couple of life jackets. By the time we were finished and came back to shore around two hours later, there still wasn't anyone around. We later retold this story to a barman and he just laughed and shook his head and said, Vanuatu time. From what I've read, Hawaii works the same. Play usually trumps work commitments. And where this is related to our story, on February 11, 1979, there were five friends who worked together in construction. We have Scott Mormon, of course. He was 27 years old. Then there was 28-year-old Tyler Benjamin Kalam, 31-year-old plumber Peter Hatchnet, 26-year-old carpenter Patrick Wozner, and 27-year-old Ralph Malahiki. And he drove trucks on construction sites. So these five guys were building a house together for a friend on the Hawaiian island of Maui. It was a gorgeous sunny day. The weather is pretty much as you would expect to see in a postcard. It had been raining for months, which wasn't unusual, but the weather had been particularly bad for three weeks. But the weather had changed and it was really good that day. And it was one of those rare occasions in the area where the sea conditions were calm. Going back to Hawaiian time, Ralph convinces all the men that they actually should take the day off because the weather had been bad for so long and the work would still be there tomorrow and they deserve the day off. So the five friends drive to Ralph's twin brother Robert's house, which is about seven miles out of Hannah Bay, and they borrow his long Boston whaler named the Sarah Joe. And from a documentary I watched, it was named after Robert and Ralph's mother. The group pack up snacks, water and beer and a huge ice-filled cooler in preparation for all the fish they were going to catch. On the way to the docks, the men stopped to grab a pair of spark plugs because while the boat was in good condition, it needed a pair of spark plugs. Actually, this particular model of boat, the Boston Whaler, was known to be unable to be sunk. There were some tests done where they would saw the boat in half and the thing would still float. So if you're going out to sea, this is the boat you want to go out on. And actually, what I said before was untrue. In the documentary, Hannah Remembers Her Sons, there is great interviews with the men's family and friends. And one of the family members did say the men actually forgot the beer and they returned to get it because what is fishing without beer? At 10 o'clock, the men launch and it would be the last time anyone would see them alive. Now, the Elanuehaha Channel between the main island and Maui, where the men were fishing, is notoriously rough and probably the most dangerous of all near Hawaii. And as I said, the weather was near perfect on the morning the men went fishing, so they weren't too worried. The problem is it was actually quite difficult to check the weather conditions on the side of the island. Hannah didn't have any TV stations and most radio stations only provided forecasts for the touristy part of the island because that's where the majority of the population lived. And this is the time before you could just download an app for the sea conditions. There was a phone line, but no one really used it. So what generally happened was that fishermen would go off what they saw and thought based on their past experiences 
which was dangerous in itself because the weather was known to change on a dime. And that's exactly what happened this day. By noon, so roughly about two hours into the men's fishing trip, a low-pressure system came through and changed the direction of the winds. Even the most amateur weatherman could tell you that this means storms. These storms were so bad that it was deemed the worst storm that the region had experienced in 50 years. There was tons of damage. And a good portion of Hana was flooded, and a number of homes and businesses were damaged by the high winds. We're talking winds reaching a speed of more than 40 miles an hour, which would which caused swells of about 40 feet. Hana Bay was closed, and one witness said that had never happened in all the storms they had gotten before. So it had to have been really bad for the bay to close, and the bay was a bad place to be during these storms. There were four boats out fishing that day, and three of them came back. The men on those boats said that in looking out, they could tell there were some storms coming, and they started heading in. One of these boats passed the Sarah Joe and had even waved and said something about heading in. Unfortunately, the Sarah Joe did not head back in, and as the storm built, there was serious concern for their safety. I would say by the time they realised the storm was coming, it probably was too late or they were too far out. I mean, if you're faced with a choice of staying put, anchoring yourself to the boat in some way and trying to ride it out, or making the potentially dangerous option of turning back and trying to get back to the dock against what must have been massive swells and winds, I would say the safer option would have been to stick it out because, I mean, they would have had no way knowing how bad it was going to get. Right. If this is the worst storm in 50 years, they had no way to anticipate how bad that was going to be. And I also heard an account that someone said they did see a boat start to come towards shore, then back up a bit and then not come. But they didn't think a whole lot of it. They were leaving the bay at the time. Could it possibly have been the Sarah Joe's engines not really being able to work against that tide? I mean, who knows? I mean, the boat wasn't all that big, especially for five of them on board. Right. Actually, that's a really good point. It really wasn't meant for five people, which is probably why they couldn't take very much more than a cooler and some drinks. As the storm really got it, got started, Peter's father, John, told a friend they needed to go down and see if they could wave the boys back in. Maybe they weren't thinking it was going to be so bad. So they were going to go down and see if they could see them out in the bay and pull them in. And in an interview, his father said, quote, By this time, it was really blowing a gale, and the rain was beginning to come down, and it was storming. We went out of Hana Harbor about half a mile and then down the coast, and I still didn't see any sign of the boys. The oceans were fierce. I've never seen it get that rough. Unquote. So you can imagine how worried he was getting. The worst water was worse than he had ever seen, and he couldn't see his son, his friends, or the boat. So John, along with Ralph's twin brother Robert, called the Coast Guard to report the Sarah Joe missing around 5 p.m. So this is seven hours after they had left and five hours after the storm started. There are conflicting reports about the equipment on the Sarah Joe. I've read both that they had no radio equipment, but in that documentary, Hannah Remembers Her Sons, it was said that they had a CB radio aboard. 
While waiting on the Coast Guard, John and the families of the other men got a group together and they kept searching. They went out into the water, but the choppy seas and poor visibility kept sending them back to shore. They went. They still went around the docks and asked anyone else if they had seen the boat. No one had any solid reports of the Sarajo at that time. On day two, the searchers approached John Naughton. He was a biologist researcher, and he was on a large 65-foot boat. He agreed to aid their search, but the water was still very rough, even with his boat. And he said they were basically looking for a small white boat in an ocean of white caps, and it would have been very difficult to see it. And this search quickly becomes a major operation. I read nearly 50 planes, helicopters and boats were involved. And over the next five days, they searched more than 73,000 square miles of ocean. The problem with the search was twofold. Firstly, because they weren't exactly sure where the men were going. And second, because, as I mentioned before, there was strong currents in the nearby channel. They didn't know exactly where they were looking. And every day they couldn't find them, the more likely they were drifting further and further into the ocean. And I mean, as I said, they were lost at sea. If you were lost in the woods or what have you, there is most likely going to be evidence where you've been. You'd leave footprints, torn clothing, blood or some kind of scent for search dogs. Regardless, there is something that can be traced. This is the sea, though. It's constantly moving and changing. It's harder to pinpoint exactly someone's movements. There was also the issue of the fact that the winds were still really high and visibility was still really bad. As you said, Charlie, it was a white ship in amongst the white sea caps. One Coast Guard told a reporter that the boat could be 50 feet in front of him and they wouldn't even know it was there. The Naval Ocean Systems Centre in San Diego got involved and they had several homing pigeons, especially trained in spotting international orange and red. And for those who don't know, because I didn't know before I started researching, but international orange and red are safety markings on ships, boats and landmarks, such as bridges and buoys. So in poor visibility, they basically glow, which makes it easier for boats and ships to see so they don't go crashing into one another. So these birds are trained to spot this, and these are the only kind of birds that are able to do that. But then the plan was foiled because, again, due to the weather, the plane trailing the birds had to make an emergency landing, and these birds were lost. And as I said, this search continued for five days. And this was a controversial search. The Coast Guard had their procedures they always followed, but the locals weren't happy. They said you need to go up further because they knew how crazy the waters got, but the Coast Guard continued with their normal searches. And not a trace was found. No life jacket, no debris, nothing. The Coast Guard assumes that the Sarah Joe must have washed out in the storm and the search is called off. And the fact the search was officially called off, it didn't go down well with the family and friends or the locals. But they don't give up. Everyone bandies together and they raise about $50,000 to hire private boats and planes. They get volunteers from all over Hawaii who then search neighbouring beaches and remote inlets and atolls for the boat. And this continued for another week and there was still nothing found. However, in the months following, if you were out in a boat fishing 
you'd make a special loop around the channel to see if you could find any evidence of what happened. So the families of the five men were left with the very real prospect of never knowing what happened to them. Memorial services were held, and it was generally accepted the ship was lost in the Pacific Ocean and that the men had drowned. And that's the way things would remain for the next 10 years. So let's fast forward through time until September 10th, 1988, nearly a 10-year time travel. A group of biologists were doing a survey of multiple unoccupied atolls in the Marshall Islands. They were making recommendations for conservation there. And one area in particular was the Tayangi Atoll. And their entire report is online, actually, if anyone is interested in the conservation concerns of the Marshall Islands from 30 years ago. I can neither confirm nor deny reports that I stayed up late reading it. One of these biologists happened to be John Naughton, the same man who allowed his boat to be used in the search for the Sarah Joe the day after the men went missing. They were about 2,300 miles or 3,700 kilometers away from Hawaii. Now, this is a moment for I've heard it both ways. There one version of events says that the biologists were on Tayangi when they came across the battered hull of a white fiberglass boat. The other version is that they were still on the water in their boat doing a visual survey of the coastline when John Naughton saw the hole on the shore. He had made a comment about it being interesting, which the more experienced crew member dismissed. As you can read in the report from 1988 that I may or may not have read, Tayangi is dangerous for boats. So wrecked boats are unimpressive there. There's a lot of coral reefs around it. It's very difficult to get into that lagoon. So regardless, if he was on land or sea when he spotted the boat, the boat had the letters H-A on it. Having lived in Maui, John realized that those letters meant the boat was registered in Hawaii. Not being anywhere near Hawaii and remembering the search from a decade before, he went in to take a closer look. When he looks at this hole, he starts to think it might be the Sarah Joe. There wasn't a lot left. The name on the boat was no longer there. But there were some of the registration numbers along with the HA, and they were able to use that to confirm that it was the Sarah Joe. But he didn't find anything else. While he was looking at the boat, one of the Marshallese fishery guys who was with him called out. About 60 yards away, back into the jungle a bit, they found a carn of coral and stones and a simple cross. Now, the order of what of how they found the items varies, but three main things were found in this pile of coral and rocks. First, there was an unbound stack of square papers. They're about three-quarter inch by three-quarter inch, and they were alternated by slips of tinfoil material in the middle. Second, they found a human jawbone with fillings in some of the teeth. And third, they found some blonde hair. John Naughton believes that the paper was part of a Chinese burial ritual, but we'll get into that more when we talk about theories. The jaw was sent back for forensic testing, and so was the whole of the boat. It was reported that the people who originally found the grave had felt it was a Christian burial and that some of the men were superstitious about disturbing the grave, so they left the rest of the bones there, though they did see them as they had first started moving rocks around. But those partial remains 
although they turn out to be partial remains, in that grave were later excavated, moved, and tested. Now, according to the dental records, the jaw was confirmed to be that of Scott Mormon, and I read that DNA testing proved that the bones were his as well. This was 1988, so I'm not sure when in the timeline they did that DNA testing. No cause of death could be determined just from the remains they found, and none of the remains of the other four men appeared to be in the atoll, and there was no evidence, there was no immediate evidence of what happened to them, and there wasn't even evidence of what happened to Scott aside from his bones being found. And you would think that if they had been buried as well, there would be similar markings, similar grave markings. Yes, and probably fairly close. You would think so. So the family members of the other four men did hire a private investigator who worked with them for months after Scott was found. He put together a team and they went back to the atoll to see if they could find anything else. On one of these trips, they did uncover the outboard motor of the Sarah Joe, and it was lodged within outcropping of submerged coral. And there was some other bones that was found at the bottom of the ocean near the atoll. These turned out to also belong to Scott Mormon, but nothing else was ever found. One of the many unanswered questions is exactly how did the Sarah Joe get there? It would mean that not only did the Sarah Joe survive the storm, but it also floated all the way to the Marshall Islands. And while experts agree that the boat could have realistically floated there in about a three-month period, there had been a thorough government survey of the islands just six years prior to the boat being discovered, but that was two years after the boat went missing, and there was no sign of it then. So this would mean the boat would have been just floating around the ocean for at least four years before reaching the atoll. So where was it all that time and why hadn't anyone else seen it? I was really curious about this survey because a survey is not always a like walking around mapping survey. There are different types of surveys. So I went and I looked it up and now, so the survey happened in either 1982 or 1985. It seems like people are a little confused on whether it happened six years before it was found or six years after it disappeared. So you'll see both reports. So I went ahead and looked up both. And believe it or not, there were surveys of Tayangi in 82 and 85. And the one in 1982 was looking at amphibians and reptiles to identify threatened species. And they went on the atoll to look at the nest. So it's very unlikely they would have missed a grave or a boat. And that's the reason that Norton was there as well, correct? Yeah, he was there for another conservation thing, but along the same lines. And, but in 1985, there was also a survey, but this one was done out in the water. It was a geological dredging expedition, and it's very likely they never even got off the boat at Tayangi. So perhaps the boat wasn't there at night in 1982. It could have been there in 85, and then of course we know it was there in 88. So that's my um, information <laughs> on random surveys in the Marshall Islands. They, they survey Tayangi a lot. I was actually surprised I found multiple so I would think that if there was two surveys and the boat was there, surely one of them would pick it up. I mean, you could understand human error in one survey, but two? Right. Yeah, I think perhaps the first one it wasn't there for. I mean, it could have made it there in three months, but 
Maybe it was drifting different ways for longer. But three years does sound like a very long time for it to just be drifting. I wouldn't imagine three months because that would mean it just made a straight beeline to the atoll. I'd imagine exactly. it being tossed back and forth around in circles. So it would have taken time to get there. It just seems like a long time, though. Yeah. So it sounds like, based on these surveys, it was, you know, more than three years, but less than 10 that it took it to get there. In addition to this, the entrance to the atoll where the boat was found is extremely narrow. So it does seem unlikely that it just would have been aimlessly drifting in there. And then what happened to the other four men who were on the boat? Were they still alive when they reached the atoll? Or if they weren't, then who buried Scott? And then there was the weirdness of the grave and the significance of the paper and the tinfoil. So on that note, I think it's time to get into theories. Okay, so the first theory that we have is that the boat engines had failed and the men, all five of whom survived the storm and managed to stay in the boat, were adrift. While drifting, they crossed paths with a ship of pirates. There is a confrontation where four of the men are taken, but Scott, who was killed, was left adrift on the boat. And the boat eventually made its way to its resting place where someone came upon it and buried him. Now, I don't mean to bring up a theory and then dismiss it immediately, but I can't figure out the motivation of why pirates would really bother with this boat. Pirates in the Pacific are more cargo pirates, and the cargo they're usually looking for is fuel. So a 17-foot boat with a dead engine and five men who had a couple of beers on them, I don't think that would have really been worth the trouble for pirates. That theory doesn't make a lot of sense with me either, because why wouldn't they just for one, throw Scott overboard and make him fish food, why would the pirates leave a perfectly good boat when you could remove the serial numbers or whatever and then sell the boat? As you said, the men didn't have anything. The real value was that actual boat, which was left behind. Exactly. Cargo pirates, it just, this doesn't fit with what we know about pirates in that area. The second theory is that, so think about the storm for a moment. As you said earlier, Charlie, this was the worst storm that part of Hawaii had seen in 50 years. This massive storm against this tiny boat. It is quite possible that in the middle of the swell, one of the men get knocked off the boat. So Scott ties himself to the boat. He obviously sees everyone else get washed off the boat and he doesn't want the same fate. Because this type of boat, the Boston Whaler, and let's add it to the weird stuff that comes up in our search history, I googled way too much into boats for this episode, but I checked the Boston Whaler and it doesn't have an enclosed cabin to hide from the storm, so there's no barrier. You are kind of left open to the elements. So he may have tied himself onto the boat so one of these 40-foot waves couldn't knock him off. And as I said, these boats are practically unsinkable. They can basically withstand anything. So if he knew that, he, could, he would be doing anything he could to stay on the boat. So the theory then goes, Scott dies, whether it be from an injury he sustained during the storm, or maybe it was due to dehydration and starvation. Regardless, he is still tied to the boat. The Sarah Joe then runs ashore on this atoll. At that stage, someone before John Norton finds the boat and out of respect, they bury the body 
add the paper and foil for whatever reason, as well as the cross. One of the more popular theories on this is that it was a Chinese or Taiwanese fishing boat in the area illegally. This area attracts turtle and large clam poachers. So the fishermen either came up on the Sarajo drifting near the atoll, or possibly it did make it through that narrow opening and washed up on shore. But if they found it drifting, maybe they towed it in and that's how it got through the opening. But they came upon it and they saw Scott's remains. They decided to bury Scott, leaving the paper as part of their burial traditions, but they also made a cross. And we know that blonde hair was found with the remains. It's very possible they guessed he was a white man and likely therefore a Christian. And so they made a cross out of respect for what they thought might be his beliefs. They wouldn't have told anyone about this because they were in the area illegally. However, they left the boat on the shore in full view of anyone who passed by, and they made the grave rather noticeable as well. If you can see pictures of it online, it wasn't lightly marked. It was a large pile of stone and coral and a cross on it. According to John Naughton, he didn't feel the grave was that old. He didn't think there was much bleaching of the bones that you would have expected had it been there for years. And there was a storm that hit the island recently to when he found the grave, and the grave didn't appear to be affected by what he thinks that storm would have done to it. However, the private investigator hired by the families, he talked to a Marshallese boat crew member who said he had seen the grave five to six years previously while patrolling for illegal fishers. So I don't know that we'll ever really know how long it was there. I'm not convinced with this Chinese fisherman theory. I don't think anyone doing anything illegally, as you said, would take the time to do a proper burial. Plus, I did look at this Chinese ritual, and again, weird Google search history alert, but I don't think they would just happen to be carrying the foil paper. Plus, the actual custom states that what happens is you actually use the paper and make little paper and foil boats. You set them on fire and you push them out to sea. This isn't the same custom here. It would be nice if someone in the area illegally was trying to, you know, be respectful of these remains they found. The truth is we know that the Marshallese government sends boats around looking for poachers. So why spend more time in that area to get spotted to bury these remains? So while I like the theory, there are some plot holes in it. I think if I was an illegal fisherman, I would just, I'd probably just ignore the boat. I'd want to just get out of the area. Right. So the next theory kind of diverges from the last theory. This theory says that it wasn't only Scott that survived the storm and made it in some form to the Marshall Islands. This theory says that at least one other person on the boat survived and that they both made it to the atoll and they tried to live there until help arrived. The issue with this is at least this atoll, it's not paradise. It's extremely arid. There is vegetation there, but it's nothing you could really live off. And there really isn't any actual island close to the Sarah Joe. Just atolls, atolls, and look, there's another atoll. I mean, I mean, I guess you could technically survive there, but 
I mean, you could catch fish and there is birds that pass over, crabs, etc. So your protein intake would be fine and you could last a little while. But the problem is water. There's only 40 inches of water annually, so that's not a lot of water, especially if there's more than one of you. So the theory is that Scott dies and then this other person, through some means, decides to get out of there. He buries Scott because Scott's dead and all his friends are dead, so he just wants to get out of there and get away from that atoll. And somehow he tries to swim away and find another island so he could be rescued. I mean, remember, we are dealing with heat exhaustion, dehydration, possible sleep deprivation, so he wouldn't be thinking clearly. And then he basically commits suicide by jumping into shark-infested waters. The biggest hole in this is I'm having such a hard time imagining that one or let alone two of them survived however long they were adrift in the elements. Even if they managed to catch some fish and ration the soda and water while they were in the ocean, a Boston whaler, like you said, doesn't provide any protection from the sun or any storms along the way. The entire there's no below deck. The entire thing is open. So I I keep I have a hard time thinking that they would have survived however long they were adrift. Well that's right. If you're floating in the ocean for months, years, you have no cover from the elements, you have no water, you're not going to last that long. You're not going to last long enough to get to the atoll. And I'm surprised that if they were alive there, there was also a survey in 1980, the 1982, the 1985, the 1988. It seems like people come around this atoll fairly regularly, that if they were alive on there, they would have flagged down a patrol boat. They would have flagged someone down. And as you said, there's people around on boats looking for poachers. Why didn't anyone see the Sarah Jo just floating there? Strange. Okay, so hang with me a sec on this next theory. It's This one is to explain why the boat wasn't found on that government survey. So let's say it was a thorough survey and John Naughton was correct that the grave was recent and not six, seven, ten years old. So how is this possible? Where was the boat the whole time that no one saw it? So let's say that all the men, or most of them, managed to tie themselves to the boat and survive the initial storm. But they're dragged out to sea. So instead of landing in Tayangi originally, they landed on a different uninhabited atoll. There's fauna and flora there, and while it isn't inhabited, it doesn't mean people couldn't live there for some length of time. The men survive for some time there, and perhaps Scott dies, and the men push him out to sea on the boat in a sea burial. Now, I know even the idiots on Gilligan's Island never got rid of their broken <laughs> boat, so I don't know that they would have done this. But honestly, maybe the other four died, or whoever was with Scott on a nearby island, and Scott, knowing he didn't have any other option, decided to chance it and tried to use the boat to get off that island and take his chances that maybe he could make it to an inhabited island. And obviously he didn't make it. And then we move on to a theory of someone found him and buried him. I think this is the most likely sequence of events, really. So the boat and the five men go missing. 
assuming all five of them survive the storm and they find themselves in the middle of nowhere, they have no gas to get back to Hawaii or maybe their engine died. So they're just drifting around for a long time. Some may have been injured. I imagine that was a possibility. The storm was really bad. And one by one, they all die. And each one is pushed off the boat for a sea burial. And then there's only one guy left, and it's Scott, and he dies. And he spends weeks or months just floating around out there. Or maybe he got caught in another atoll. Or the survey of the island missed the boat somehow. Someone comes across the remains and buries them. Who could it be, though? I have no idea. That's the biggest mystery for me here. And it seems strange because it seems barely anyone came to the island apart from those on an official capacity. The only thing I can think of is the illegal fishermen, but that doesn't explain the paper. And as I said, I'm not sold on the Chinese fishermen idea, if for the only reason, because China is a long way away from Hawaii. I think the, my opinion is, I think the first four men were swept overboard during the storm, or they died before Scott, and he had no choice but to toss them overboard. I think Scott died while the boat was drifting, and the ocean is a really big place. A 17-foot boat could go unseen for a while. I mean, we've had planes explode over the ocean or crash into the ocean and not be found. I think it could be drifting for quite a while. And then I think he got near Tiangi. Someone spotted the boat and pulled it in and buried him. I don't, that doesn't explain the lack of bleaching on his bones unless he had a, I don't know that he had a blanket in there that he covered himself up with before he died. I, I mean, I don't know. I do think the most likely person who would bury him would have to be someone who was in that area and someone who wasn't motivated to report a dead body. And so all I can really come back with is someone who was there illegally, whether it was a Chinese or Taiwanese fisherman or just anyone else, maybe even a Marshallese fisherman who was there illegally. I think that is who buried him. I I don't know the significance of the paper. I know it doesn't really match the burial rituals, but I do think whoever buried him knew they weren't supposed to be there and that's why they didn't report it. And as you said, the Marshallese people are quite religious, so it would make sense they would give him some kind of burial. Right. And if they if it was someone who was Marshallese, they wouldn't be so worried about getting spotted because they could say, oh, we were just in the area. We were just... Yeah, I, I live here. What's the big deal? Yeah. I live here on this... Un- yeah. I was just taking a cruise around. And so, I mean, they wouldn't be as nervous about stopping and giving him a burial. This is just one of these stories where we only have a little of, we only have little information and what we do have there is conflicting stories and then that is balanced out with a whole heap of crazy theories. What we haven't talked about today, I've seen aliens and time hopping out there and that's used as legit theories. But the thing is all we really know is that they disappeared the day of the storm. And then 10 years later, a boat and a buried body or parts of a buried body were found. And if Scott was truly found with this paper foil system, which I'm not entirely convinced this isn't an exaggeration of the truth, it's not unknown for a story to start with a jawbone is washed up on shore 
And then it turns into headline, aliens bury an entire body with shiny tinfoil. I literally have no idea what happened to the rest of the crew or what happened in the 10 years the boat were missing. There's one part for me that I can't fit into anything, and it's the portion of Scott's bones that were in the lagoon. Unless perhaps an animal scavenged them, that only part of his remains were buried and some were in the water. I'm not entirely sure how that fits, and it certainly doesn't fit in my theory that he was found in the boat and and buried. Yeah, because as I said, that's my theory too. And when I looked at the animals that are on the atoll, you're looking at like turtles and more migratory birds. So nothing right. that you would think that would be picking up whole bones and carrying it. It's just strange. So there is a piece that none of my theories really fit, and that's that his remains were separated. It's just a strange story. Unless his bones were on the boat and somehow it got washed off the boat. Right. I, I don't know. Because the, the motor was separated from the boat. So maybe it got hit by a large wave and some bones got washed off the boat. I mean, it would be interesting that they that the boat made it through that, that opening where it wouldn't have bottom out on coral reefs and made it into the lagoon on its own. But it's not impossible that that would have happened. Well, we know it did happen. Or someone dragged them in. I mean, maybe it did drift over some of that coral embankment, and that's how the engine and some of the his bones got scattered into the lagoon. For that to happen, it would have had to have been stuck on some coral and yanked, I would imagine. Maybe it was yanked. Maybe whoever buried him did find it kind of stuck on one of the coral reefs and pulled it across. Okay, so what we started doing last week is saying thank you to our five-star reviews and to our Patreon subscribers. We just wanted to say thank you to our five-star reviews on Patreon. So thank you to Starbuck Chuck, to Eat, Sleep and Run, which I love that username, and to Ghostyless, who's called us a baby podcast. I miss being called a baby podcast. And to our patrons, thank you to Jason, Jessica, and BB for supporting the show. It's really appreciated. So if you want to see some links from our research and to learn a little bit more about the crew of Sarah Jo, visit our website, insightpod.com. I haven't been putting out articles on the website, but I will get into that later this month. It is summer vacation here, so the kids have been just driving me crazy. <laughs> you can also listen to all our episodes there, as well as iTunes or your favourite podcast app. If you like listening to us and you can help, please consider becoming a patron, like Jason, Jessica and BB. For Pocket Change, you can access our monthly premium episodes. So just head on over to patreon.com slash insightpod for more information. We also have a PayPal for a one-off donation, and we also have T-shirts, coffee cups, travel mugs. Links to all of these are on our website. If you can't become a patron, you can show your support through iTunes by rating, reviewing, and subscribing, which helps us bump up the charts a bit and brings more people our way. You can contact us with your episode suggestions, feedback, or just to tell us how awesome we are via Facebook and Instagram at InsightPod. 
Twitter at InsightfulPod, or you can email us, InsightfulPod at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Bye, guys.